Good morning. Those of you who I have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Joel. I'm uh, the pastor for our community groups here at Spring Branch. Um, I have my wife, Haley, and we have one daughter, Lainey, who is four years old. Hi. Um, I want to... I want to let you guys in on a, a conversation of mine and Haley's that early on in our dating relationship that has lived on in infamy in our ongoing relationship. Uh, when we were dating, uh, we actually knew each other in college, didn't start dating until after college. We're kind of slow. Um, but when we're talking about just some of the things that we appreciated about our one another, about our relationship, about who we were. Um, and so my turn came and Guys, I had a lot of things uh, on the list. I had many options. I could have waxed eloquent about just how beautiful she was, how I was attracted to her. I could have gone on about how knowing her in college, I watched her like ser- really serve her friends and, and loved ones like faithfully, willingly, sac- sacrificially. I could have said that she was a, a peaceful presence to all those that she interacts with. I could have done any of those things. Instead, the words that came out of my mouth were, I really appreciate that you're, uh, you know, the kind of easygoing person that doesn't require dramatic, like lavish demonstrations of my love for you. (laughs) Okay. That was not what she was looking for. Now, there was, some, there was some history to that. There was some backstory to that. There was some like failed previous relationships to that statement. But I missed really the question that she was asking. I, I was answering a different question and it provided, uh, it, it uh, ended up in a, created a great deal of frustration <laughs> on her part uh, and just kind of a bewildering reaction. Like she's like, oh, okay. And I'm going, well, I don't know, why, why wasn't that received as well as I thought it was going to be received, right? Okay, so pro tip, uh, guys, for your girlfriends, fiancés, wives, don't ever do that. Don't ever uh, talk about how low the bar is set um, in your relationship, okay? That's not a starting point. That's not, that's not a good out-of-the-blocks statement. Um, but I think that we do this a lot. I think that we come to, whether it's another person or in this case, a passage, we're going to be in Acts 8 today. So turn your Bibles to Acts 8. I think if we are looking for the wrong, if we, if we perceive the wrong question, then the way that we answer that question will meet us, we'll, we will be met with some frustrating or bewildering answers to the wrong question. Okay. And so Acts 8 is a great test case for us in this. I think that we ask at least a couple of the wrong questions of this chapter. And I hope that we can illuminate those. I hope we can hopefully answer what I think is the right question from Acts 8. So let's, let's read together. We're going to just read uh, verses 1 through 4. Um, we're going to actually start in the second half of verse 1. It's kind of split a weird way. A great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Okay. Now, look, I hope I don't 
at the risk of wasting a little bit of our time, I don't think it's a waste of our time, I want to ask the question, uh, whether you saw the words good news, maybe your translation says good news, maybe it says gospel, what is the, the gospel has, it's, it's not a, um, it, um, we, the gospel has, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a foreign word, it's not a word that is first used by Christians, um, it had Greco-Roman context. In that world, in the Greco-Roman world, the word gospel, it simply means what it sounds like it means, good news, okay? It's the euangelion. It's an announcement. It is a proclamation. And typically, the gospel is a proclamation that a new Caesar or a new king is come into power, okay? And so there's a herald that will go throughout the, throughout the region and announce an announcement that someone has become king, or Caesar. Well, we have a gospel. And the gospel of Jesus is simply that. It is a proclamation or an announcement that Jesus is king. That Jesus has become king. Okay, and so we're going to get to the manner in which that happens. But that's just our first point, okay? The gospel is the good news announcement that Jesus is king. And not just over Rome, but over all of creation. Okay, we're coming right on the heels of chapter 7, where Stephen, first martyr, first uh, man executed for testifying to his faith in Christ Jesus, he beholds Jesus. He has a vision of Jesus. As he is being stoned to death, he says, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of power. Okay, this is authority language. This is ruler language, reigning language for Jesus. This says that he is in a position of authority and power at the right hand of God, just like his great, 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 great grandpappy, King David. Okay, he says, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of power, at the glory of God, okay? And this is not actually language that's new for his followers. In fact, in the Gospels, we have kingship language all scattered about. And it's kind of some weird uh, passages that honestly, for me, um, seem like kind of throwaway type things. Like, okay, that's great. That's fun. But his baptism, Jesus' baptism is his anointing as king. Okay, he's, di- he's buried into the waters. He comes out. This is, there's water just pouring all over his head, just like when the prophet Samuel goes to David and anoints him with olive oil. He's going to be king. This is the anointing of Jesus as, as a future king, as the now and future king. And his ascension, Jesus' ascension. We do not talk much about the ascension of Jesus. It is like one of the most overlooked, underemphasized doctrines, but it is his enthronement. Okay, Jesus is not just, okay, bye-bye, I'm going to go now. Okay, I'll see you guys later, thousands of years later. Um, this is his enthronement, his ascension to the right hand of God in power. Okay, and so just like any, when any new ruler comes to power, there is an appropriate response. There is a response that makes sense if there is a new king in town. And so in Acts 8, we get a couple of very different responses to this proclamation that Jesus is king. Okay? When the gospel goes out, it is an announcement that he's king and there are responses to it. And we've seen good ones and we're about to see at least one poor one. Okay? So the question that we want to be answering of this chapter is simply that. What response makes sense for the proclamation, the good news that Jesus has become king? What response is fitting 
for that announcement. And just like the young, dumb, selfish version of me, single version of me that was answering the wrong question, okay, we need to make sure that we're answering the right question so we don't get some frustrating, bewildering results from this passage. Okay, so let's keep reading. We're going to read. I'm going to kind of skim 5 through 13 because this is a big chapter and we just, we got to focus on some high points. But Philip, we're introduced to Philip who's going to Samaria and telling people about the Messiah, Jesus. Crowds are listening. They're eager to hear this message. Miraculous signs are being performed. Evil spirits are being cast out. There are paralyzed people or or, or, um, uh, uh, disabled people being healed. And there was great joy in all of the city. Okay, the gospel is a good news proclamation. Okay, so there's great joy in the city. But now we are introduced to a man named Simon who had been a sorcerer there for many years. I thought it would be fun to dress as a sorcerer, just like kind of kill two birds with one stone, hit some of you visual learners, right? I mean, do the Halloween thing. I didn't, I passed on that. Okay, so there's no costume contest this Sunday morning. Um, But we're introduced to this man and Already, I want you to note some of the distinctions here. It says that he was a sorcerer. He was claiming to be someone great. People in town spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely because he had done a lot of miraculous, I guess, powerful things with his magic. Philip, uh, many, excuse me, uh, the people believed Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went and was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Okay, so I just want to say it this way. Let's assume if you have some of these kind of unexpected foreshadowing type comments that are made as you read, I want you to assume Uh, The way that my my wife, the English and reading interventionist teacher would say, authorial intent. I want you to assume that that's not there for no good reason. I want you to assume that whether it's the human author under or under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, divine author, whatever involvement you want to perceive there, that there is some degree, a high degree of intention of of authorial intent of craft in that statement. You've got all of these people that are believing in the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God and of Christ Jesus. And even Simon believed. Okay. And so from the very beginning of our introduction to this sorcerer, this magician, okay, he is being set apart from the rest of the crowd. And we are being invited by the author to consider why that might be. Okay, let's keep reading because we're going to read 14 through 25 in its entirety because this is really the crux of it. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for those new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon the believers and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. 
But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you have said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Okay, if the right question is how we should respond to the good news that Jesus is king, if that if that's the question, let's talk about two of the wrong questions. Two of the wrong questions are this. Why didn't the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit as soon as they believed? Wrong question number one. Wrong question number two. Was Simon the sorcerer ever truly saved? Okay, let's talk about either one of those. Uh, we can't camp out here, but it's important to answer some of these questions because there is some lack of clarity here. We need some, we need some clear teaching on this, right? You need to understand about the Samaritans that the Jewish people hated the Samaritans bitterly. Okay. It all started back in the book of first and second books of first and second Kings. Okay. There is a split. There's a rift between the kingdom of Israel, between David's kingdom. There's Northern Israel and Southern Judah. And the Assyrian army comes for Northern Israel and they haul most of them off into slavery and they leave just a handful, a remnant of people in northern Israel. And what the Assyrians do, the way that they did conquest, was they piped in people, groups, from other countries. And they forced them to at least interact, if not intermarry with one another. And so what happens is culture uh, and like ancestral faith and religion dies in those places. It's completely like blended. It's just a mishmash. Um, and all of their identity as a people group is gone. Okay. When you don't have identity as a people group, you don't really care about, you know, who is ruling over you. There's nothing that you want that you're pushing back against. Right. So this worked in the case of the northern tribes. It's actually why we call them the 10 lost tribes of Israel, because there, was, there were other religions come in, and so there is a blending of the Jewish faith and pagan gods, idolatry, to the point that in between the Old and New Testament, they actually dedicated their temple at Gerizim that they had built to Zeus. Okay, that's not a good look, right, for followers of Yahweh to dedicate the temple to Zeus. Can we all agree, right? And so they were thought of as apostate. They had abandoned the faith. They had abandoned their culture, their ancestors, etc., etc. So they are despised by the Jewish people. And God, in his wisdom, when the gospel is going out, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in Acts, we know that that's the progression, right? And so God in his wisdom decides or elects that Peter and John, the representatives of the early church, okay? Philip's wonderful. Philip is full of the Holy Spirit. This is a solid dude from just the previous chapter, right? Two chapters ago. But Philip is not the representative. Peter and John are going to be the ones that come and with authority say, no, these men and women are part of the people of God. These are new covenant believers in 
King Jesus, and they will receive the Holy Spirit just like anyone else. This is an incredibly unique time in the history of the early church. And God wisely saw fit to have his kind of key representative at this time, Peter and John, be the ones to lay hands on that they would receive the Holy Spirit. But this is not normal. This doesn't have, this only happens one other time in the book of Acts, in Acts 19, with some followers of John the Baptist. And even then, Paul, when Paul goes and lays hands on them and they receive the Spirit, he says, did you not receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Like, it's presumed that that's the thing, right? That's how this goes down. Ephesians 1.13, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. That's normal. So we got to know, why is this happening? Okay. It's happening for all of this historical reason, okay? We got to know that, but please remember, that's not the right question to be asking of of Acts 8, okay? The question of whether or not Simon was ever genuinely saved is also the wrong question to be asking. And I think, look, if we're honest, the evidence kind of cuts in both directions. Look in verse 13. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized, okay? That seems like a clear statement. I mean, Philip, a man who was described as being full of wisdom and of the spirit, baptized this man. It says he believed. Okay, that's good. But can we admit that everything after that is kind of a dumpster fire for Simon? Like, it's not great. This is not like the resume that you want to. I think I can buy the Holy Spirit. Okay, not cool. Um, It actually never says that he had hands laid on him and received the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't want it for himself. He just wants the power to go and lay hands on other people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, the lack of self-awareness that is required to be able to do that. The kind of like gall, right? I mean, yikes. Simon is a magician. Okay, point two. If you want the power of God, the power of Jesus without submitting to the King Jesus, you're just asking for a magic trick. And if we're honest, we do this time and time again ourselves. Okay. Are you thinking today? Have you ever thought ever that by putting your child in kids ministry or in students ministry, that that is going to change them or fix them, but you yourself have no desire, no commitment to intentionally discipling your kids to to imparting to them the truth that you have received from, the, from, from God or the grace that you have experienced from God. Is, it, is that not a part of your paradigm? If not, then you're looking for a magic trick, thinking that Megan and Ryan can transform them into godly, mature men and women of God who follow him faithfully all the days of their life. It might happen. But you're asking for a magic trick if you're not submitting to the king in that. Are you dating Christian people 
thinking that that will guarantee a successful lifelong marriage if you have no desire to root out the strongholds of sin and your life and grow in maturity in Christ. If so, you are looking for a magic trick to be performed in your life. It might happen, but it's not normal. That's not, that's not something you like scheme out for. Are you dropping a check in the offering box once a year at tax season, thinking that God is then obligated to bless you and prosper you, the work of your hands, and yet you have no desire to live a life of generosity, the kind of generosity of Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor so that we might be rich. And he is not talking financially there, folks. You are looking for a magic trick if that is the case. We are just like Simon if that is the case. We want the power of Jesus without submitting to King Jesus. And it will not work the way that we have drawn it up. The story of Simon is left ambiguous for a reason. Okay, if you ever, if you remember the movie Inception, uh, then you remember one of the most famously ambiguous endings since like Blade Runner or Taxi Driver or something. It's, it is a fantastic movie. Um, and in this movie, I'm not going to spoil it, even though it's like 20, uh, 15, 20 years old. I don't know how old it is. Um, but we'll, I'll let you go and, and, red, and red box it or Netflix it or something, wherever it is, whatever streaming service it is. Um, in this movie, it's all about, it, it is characters coming in and out of dream world and reality. And part of the, one of the plot devices is that they're never 100% sure which one they're in. And so they carry with them this totem. And it's a little trinket kind of a thing. And in the dream world, it will do one thing. And in the real world, it will do another. And so the star of the movie in the final scene of the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio, he has his totem, the little top, and he spins it. And as the camera pans away, DiCaprio is walking away. um, And the camera lingers on the top and it's spinning Spinning wobbles a little bit, or does it? I don't know. Keep spinning. Cut. Roll credits. You just don't know, right? And if the, po- the point is, if you are more focused, right? Like you can go on YouTube and you can look up probably hundreds of hours of theorizing about whether or not the top is going to fall. And if you're more fixated on this little thing, okay, you will miss the point of the story that is being told. If you are more fixated on Simon the sorcerer as a case study for once saved, always saved, then you are missing the point of the story, okay? Don't email me. I'm not, tr- I'm not trying to duck this question. I'm saying it's not the point of this text. I'm actually saying you're, my, you might be ducking the point of this text by looking for once saved, always saved here because it just doesn't answer. Look, he asks, pray for me that all these terrible things that you have said won't happen to me. Notice he doesn't say, pray for me that I would receive the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say whether or not they even pray for him. And there's no record of what becomes of Simon the sorcerer, none. 
Instead, see, I, I think the question, if we're asking, does, is Simon really truly believe, a believer? I think that question is actually quite dangerous. Because we're asking, hey, how low is the bar? If Simon the sorcerer is a believer, shoot, he tried to buy the Holy Spirit. He got put on blast by one of the eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. If he can get in, I should be fine. I'm good, man. I got a maid in the shade. I've never had any of that stuff happen to me. The Bible is never going to answer the question, how low is the bar for discipleship for you? It's never going to answer that question. Instead, if we're asking the question, what should our response be to the good news that Jesus is king? The answer lies in the final frame of our story. And again, I'm going to kind of skip, skim it a little bit. Philip is moving along. An angel of the Lord tells him to walk a particular desert road uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. He happens upon a treasure, an Ethiopian eunuch who's under the direction of the queen of Ethiopia, uh, the Kandake. Okay, so shout out to all the Candaces uh, today. You got a pretty sweet name. Um, he is reading a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He's reading actually chapter 53, as we know it, from the prophet Isaiah. Um, and Philip goes over to him and says, do you understand what you are reading? The man replied, how can I, unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb in silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? And here's the key. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus, the gospel, Jesus is king. And they rode along, and as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And we'll stop there. This passage, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage, it is famous in Christian circles. It's been famous for thousands of years. It's where the suffering servant on behalf of the people of Israel takes on their sins and dies a miserable death. We're talking about how the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is king, but we also need to talk about the manner in which Jesus became king. Okay. In order to do that, let's turn briefly to Philippians 2. I want you to actually flip over there. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I heard one scholar say that the gospel is V-shaped. So we'll put that, let's put that slide up on the screen. Uh, I think it's a perfect uh, picture of what the gospel looks like, especially from this passage you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus becomes king by humiliating himself. He knew he was equal with God. He instead took on flesh, died on a cross, lived a faithful life to the Father. And because of that, because of who he was and who he said he was, he died a sinner's death, a criminal's death on the cross. But because in virtue of his faithfulness and his identity as the Son of God, God vindicated him, raised him from the dead, seated him, elevated him, enthroned him, exalted him above every other power that exists. And now everyone, one day, all of creation will offer him praise that is fitting for what he has done. That's the gospel. That's how Jesus became king. He defeated the powers of sin and death and the devil and now is seated in power at God's right hand. And there is a response that is fitting, that makes sense in light of that truth. In my conversation with Haley, I was telling her what felt convenient about our relationship. What she was hoping to hear was what it was about her that made me willing to sacrifice for her, to give up whatever it took to be with her. The gospel is that message. I heard it said recently, Jesus is not trying to be a useful hobby that we just wish we had a little more time to get into. Right, But oh, but for our sports schedules, oh, but for work, oh, but for vacation time. And you know, we got, a, you know, we got this and we got that. Guys, look, I'm not trying to tell. I'm not asking for rote obedience. I'm not asking just for checking the box. Okay, I, I, we've had enough. We have had enough in our churches. I've had enough in my own life of obedience just because I said so, right? The gospel is that Jesus loved you to the extent that he would live this kind of life on our behalf. And so we as followers, as ones that are trying to be obedient to him, that are trying to live our lives in a Jesus shaped sort of way are those that are going to be willing to conform our lives, to follow the suffering servant in his obedience to the father. Okay, so I'm not asking you, I'm not asking you to get up every morning and read your, your, your quiet time just so you can get to the end of your yearly Bible reading plan just because he says so. I'm compelling you, if, it is, if you think it's even possible to, when you open God's word, is it in the morning, is it at night? I don't, I don't so much care, but do you trust 
that he is speaking to you, that he is the risen and exalted King Jesus who will give you wisdom and direction and discernment for how to live, then follow him. By all means, follow him. Okay? I'm not asking you, I'm not asking you to go to a community group just because just because, like, I, I guess we're not supposed to do this alone. I guess it's helpful to have friends in this crazy suffering journey or something. Like, I, I'm, I'm telling you that you need someone else's perspective for the times in which you really, really want to sit on that throne yourself. For the times that you really think that all of the, all of the clutter and the busyness of your life, that that really is more priority than King Jesus. You need someone else to point that out to you. You desperately need reminders of that. So by all means, be in community with someone who's willing to do that, who's willing to push in with you on that. I'm not asking for church attendance just so we can keep this room full and all of the bills getting paid. I'm saying this is where we as a body of believers come together to offer praise to the living God. And if you think that that matters, if you think that that really happens, okay, then cut the coffee line short just one Sunday, right? And come be a part for a little bit longer because you think that God is speaking. The living God is speaking and he might have something to say to you. Just maybe his love for you is overwhelming. Come participate in it. Follow him in it. How will you respond? Let's pray. Jesus, to the best of our ability, this morning we confess and believe that you are king. And when we baptize people in your name, Jesus, we repeat the words buried with Christ in his death. And so just like the Ethiopian eunuch was willing to publicly pledge his allegiance to you. To be dependent on you. For everything. We ask that you would move in our hearts and make us willing to do the same. Jesus, would you also just remind us today? Yes, you are king. But you are such a loving king. Jesus, that in you is fullness of joy. It would be a great success, if we can call it that, for just one of us today to entrust ourselves to you as King, as Lord, in a new way. Whether that means that we've been looking to you 
for all of our kind of shopping list of needs. And we need to maybe just throw ourselves at your feet. Or whether that means that we have never known you before, Jesus, and we are coming to you for the first time. Would you reveal yourself to us today? Father, would we feel the love that you loved us with first, that you would send your son? And Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts to respond to that love? We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If I can ask the prayer team to come up on the left and the right, um, we're going to sing together again. I, I told Aubrey and Chris, we were talking about the uh, service this weekend or this past week. I'm so grateful. It is, it's uh, what, what a, an amazing song. My heart is yours is the song that we're going to sing. Um, and I just invite you to give your heart to him, to the king who loved you first. Uh, and if there's something in your life that he's stirring in you to come and ask for prayer for, I invite you to do that as well. Thanks.